All righty. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to yet another Superstock AMA. So I'll be your fly on the wall host today while we've got our guest, Dave, um, who will be chatting to the renowned attorney, Wes Christian. So thank you both for taking the time to join us today and welcome. Well, I'm happy to be here and, and talk about the cause. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Right. No worries at all. So we've got a pretty packed agenda um, for everything this evening, everything from the origins of naked shorting uh, to the many cases that you've worked on, Wes. So I'll pass it over to you, Dave, and you can take it away. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm also going to let Wes do most of the talking here. He's the expert on this. And, uh, you know, I know it's an area that uh, Superstonk has paid a lot of attention to, um, you know, and broadly speaking, you know, talking about understanding the mechanics of shorting of failed to delivers and of how uh, firms are managing or manipulating that process. And, you know, I know we couldn't have someone who is more qualified to talk about that than someone that I've had the pleasure of working with now for a couple of years, Wes. Um, and so, Wes, you know, I'll hand it off to you if you want to give a short intro. Great, Sue, I'd be happy to. So first, I just want to thank uh, all the followers in this group, which I understand is close to 300,000. So realize each one of you are important to the cause. Exposing this, uh, getting this information out is critical. It's going to take all of us to make a change. Uh, as Dave alluded uh, to and earlier, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm going to briefly tell you how this all started and take you through a lot of these cases and equally as important, a lot of the enforcement actions that the SEC, FINRA and others have, have issued in connection with this, which we're going to later post on this website is what I understand. So 20 years ago, a very infamous lawyer, John O'Quinn uh, and I were meeting with a client, uh, someone he actually went to church with, who uh, he and his friends owned like 80% of the stock of the company. Uh, they could not understand how that many shares were trading every day, which exceeded the issued and outstanding shares of the company. It was a small cap company. Frankly, at that point, I knew nothing about how this works, uh, but I did know fraud when I see it, uh, as did Mr. O'Quinn, who, you know, I think got an $18 billion settlement against uh, the, for the state of Texas against the tobacco companies. Likewise, our firm does many things and have gotten verdicts and stuff against other for other things too. But this is a passion of mine because uh, I believe, and I'll start out telling you this and I'll end up telling you this, that this could truly crater uh, US economies and world economies if it's not ultimately addressed at some level. So from there, we started trying to understand how does the clearing and process work? How does shorting work, et cetera? And what we figured out pretty quickly is a lot of shares were being sold um, basically uh, uh, without delivering those shares. And what we learned is that in the clearing and in, in the clearing process that, that a lot of the departments that are responsible for buying shares in if they're not delivered just wasn't happening. So we began to investigate that. We then teamed up with Patrick Byrne of Overstock.com. We then filed that case and we figured out in the process of that case that ultimately the, the, the mission of the bad guys was to rig the market. So how do they rig markets? They do it in about five different ways. They rig it with misinformation, in this case from Gradient Analytics uh, and Camelback Research, who are actually being paid by a hedge fund to give Overstock an F. Ultimately, uh, that case settled and we then went on to sue the prime brokers. 
From there, we learned that uh, massive fails to deliver existed in, in, in many of those firms. We learned that uh, the class actions that were filed against the firm uh, overstock were really done in bad faith. We also surprisingly got an SEC investigation ultimately to help push the stock down. And then ultimately uh, saw the option market go crazy in connection with options. So we learned there, including from emails and other things I can't talk about because the, the information in that case is legally protected as they are in many of these cases, I learned that the um, perfect storm is to have them sell shares that they don't deliver, uh, get analysts to print bad stuff about you or people on the boards to say bad things about you, go after your auditors, get an SEC investigation started, team up with class action lawyers to sue you for something. And ultimately the mission is to do everything they can to drive the stock down. Why? Because every undelivered share uh, is a share that is a contingent liability on their books. So basically um, from there, I'm being asked to scoot closer to the camera. <laughs> from there, from there, basically uh, what, what it tells you is that uh, their mission is to rig the game. The next big case we went to was uh, the taser gun company. And from there, we ultimately learned other things. Uh, stock was being lent that doesn't exist, which is another systemic issue. Because in order to, um, uh, hold on a second, look at the camera, put the window on the screen closer to the camera. Okay. Um, from there, basically, we learned that, that the um, bad guys were going to the market uh, some group of people were buying puts, another group of people were buying calls and they put together synthetic shares. Synthetic shares means that I'm going to artificially create a share. Why? Because once that contract consummates, you know, one's got the put, one's got the call. Unfortunately, uh, in, in many cases, what happens is that contract is torn up two days before consummation. So while they're able to show it to the compliance department, Ultimately, the, the end result is, is the transactions, a fake transaction. Again, more misinformation in the marketplace, okay? Um, we also learned uh, during that period of time in several cases that the fails to deliver were hidden in subsidiary companies. So the fails may go to Canada, they may go to UK, they may go other places. In addition, they would do reverse conversions, which is basically a, a, a fancy word whereby they would enter into another, let's call it futures contract, but it too wasn't, wasn't consummated. So again, more misinformation. Uh, in addition, locates were being given on shares uh, multiple times when there's only one share. So somebody would call you know, Merrill or Goldman and say, I need a locate those locates would be given multiple times and they would be done so when only there's one share or two shares. Again, I'm making up the hypothetical. There are many locates that are being given where shares simply don't exist. So the lack of enforcement and oversight in the stock lending business is, is a key issue in this whole saga. And incidentally, just for the record, a lot of this I'm telling you is in these enforcement actions. So I'm not specifically talking about any discovery from the individual cases. I'm talking about things that came out in the, what, what you're going to read from the regulators. So in addition to uh, lending their clients 
margin shares, which don't forget each one of you out there who signs a margin agreement, it has the, it gives them contractually the right to lend your shares. Another thing that you'll see in the enforcement actions, which we've seen in cases, is they're using cash account shares. Cash account shares in the states are protected by Rule 15C33. And in doing so, uh, uh, that, that rule says the cash account shares, that is shares that aren't leveraged in a margin account, have to be segregated in the United States. They can't be touched. The broker can't do anything to encumber them. Well, guess what? Those shares are likewise being used. So, you know, what, what's the, the mission there is to keep your eyes on your cash account shares and make sure they don't leave. And uh, if you can get a lockup agreement, you know, from your broker, because they are doing that. And, and, and as Dave knows, because Dave is, I think, originally from Canada, as I recall, um, basically uh, Canada uh, changed the rules here about two years ago uh, when I went up to speak on a uh, symposium that the McMillan firm in Canada had given. And I spoke out against cash account shares being used in Canada. They can now use your cash account shares to actually short against you <laughs> for their own proprietary trading account. Oh, but it's with your consent. Uh, many people probably don't read the fine print when they gave that consent, but believe it or not, that's legal in Canada until they change that. If you can imagine anything that crazy. So, uh, Wes, do you think that uh, in terms of those lockup agreements that you mentioned for cash account shares, is that the kind of thing that is a, a standard request that somebody can make of their broker? No, it, 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 it isn't standard, but it can be done, I'm told. Again, that's not my area of expertise, mm -hmm. but I do know uh, because I have clients that own big blocks of shares that, that have that agreement. So I do know it can be done and it exists. And I can also tell you, I know hundreds and hundreds of instances where not with the lockup agreement, but where it was put in a cash account shares that the shares disappeared. Okay, they're gone. Uh, because ultimately, don't forget, their mission is to try and use every conceivable share they can to cover up the crime. Okay, because it is illegal to, at least for us, uh, uh, and, and frankly, it should be for everybody, and it is illegal for everybody, but it's just not enforced. But for the individuals, it is enforced. We must borrow those shares before we can short but that isn't how the big boys do the game. They, they get a borrow that isn't a real borrow or they don't borrow at all, uh, especially if they're self-clearing. Uh, for, for those- Like Citadel. People, like Citadel. So, you know, if, if you're listening, you know, go, go check out the Q's and K's of the seven biggest prime brokers, Merrill Lynch, uh, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, UBS, Goldman, et cetera. And you're going to see that proprietary trading is one of their biggest money makers and stock lending is another big money maker. Now, can I prove that proprietary trading is them doing this illegal activity? I cannot, uh, but I can tell you it's an enormous money maker for them. And one thing I've learned about Wall Street uh, for all you listeners is that they never let their clients make more money than them. And that's an important thing to understand when we first started in this space 20 years ago. It was a space that pretty much was exclusively, uh, 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 you know, subject to the the small cap markets, the bulletin board markets, uh, uh, you know, convertible debentures, death spiral financing, things like that. But what's happened is over time, it went up the food chain. It went up the food chain to Amex and and New York Stock Exchange companies, et cetera. And the the reason for that is, frankly, there's more money to be made. The margins are bigger. The delta is larger. 
you know, overstock when we uh, were brought in was like, you know, 80 something bucks. It, it, they drove it down to $10 or something. So imagine selling at 80 and covering at 10 or maybe not at all. The ultimate mission, of course, is to is to drive it through the floor and put it in bankruptcy. Um, so and going back a little also just to put some history in perspective and Reg show in perspective, Patrick Byrne, the American Chamber of Commerce, my firm, John O'Quinn's firm, Rob Shapiro, who's our one of our damage experts and others uh, hired lobbyists. We went to Congress. We went to the SEC and ultimately uh, it, we're a, a part of getting Reg show passed. And while it's somewhat of a toothless tiger, at least it identified for the first time that there are fails to deliver. Now, sadly, the company's shares that were getting sold and not delivered got posted. The, 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 the rapist, the person who raped the company, the rapist, I call them, uh, their name didn't get exposed, but the party who got raped got exposed, the company. But at least it justified that what we were saying was true. It, it substantiated it. I remember on, on uh, in January of 2005, when that first got put in, in, into effect, Reg Show, which we worked so hard on, there were thousands of companies on there. Well, today, incidentally, there's very few. And the reason's very simple, and you can see it in some of these enforcement actions we're gonna post later, is they're marking a lot of the tickets long. So one of the ways that the bad guys believe, hey, I can circumvent Reg Show, and that this only applies to the United States, is I can mark it long, because guess what happens when they mark it long? It doesn't go in short interest, which incidentally, ladies and gentlemen, means that the reported short interest is garbage in many cases. Why? Because all the shares that were marked long, but have also failed to deliver in various different ways, uh, uh, aren't reported in your short interest. So in most cases we've done, the short interest is 50% to sometimes 150% more than what's reported by the SEC, which of course is reported every two weeks. So yeah, and that's that's not a controversial um, statement either. You know, I was involved in a case in which the rebuttal of our report was them attempting to say, oh, but, you know, we looked they, they signed an affidavit. We looked through our marking system and we did. We were not selling short. And our simple response was go search FINRA broker check and you will be overwhelmed by the number of fines that result from mismarking these orders. Yeah, I think the number of fines, which is in that list, it's about two or three years old because it's a big effort to update it. The list that I had sent over to you, Dave, I think is over five or six hundred million. Uh, but again, it's just a cost of doing business. I mean, it's like Merrill got fined a, a couple of years ago for using the cash account shares of their customers worldwide for their own proprietary trading. OK, I think they find them 450 million or something like that. Well, you know, my, my dad, you know, who was a rancher and a pilot, you know, said if somebody's making that much money, they're screwing somebody. Okay, so, so the bottom line is, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't pay that kind of fine unless you're making enormous amounts of money, which of course is what they did. So from there, um, what we've learned in 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 uh, some of this is in recent regulatory actions is they're always thinking of new ways, new ways to not disclose this fail to deliver, places to put it that you can't find it, these type of things. So, so one of the, 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 the latest ways in the last several years is one, they're bifurcating the sale from the delivery. So the, one company will sell the shares, one of their affiliates will be responsible for delivering the shares, but that, that affiliates in London or it's in Hong Kong or it's in Canada 
or it's somewhere outside the purview of the SEC. Hence, it doesn't really show up, okay? Secondly, they're doing a lot more ex-clearing transactions. So another thing that the viewers uh, listening need to understand, this is extremely important, is there, in my mind, there's two sets of books. Two sets of books, no different than how Enron kept two sets of books here in Houston. Um, one set of books is through the DTC. That's what I would call an audit trail. But if you go look at the Depository Trust Corporation, you're going to see that several years ago, they quit uh, uh, implementing the stock borrowing program like they, like they did for many years. And what I believe, uh, this, this is speculation on my part, but our experts believe this too, is a lot of that is now ex-clearing. Ex-clearing means it goes from broker to broker outside the purview of the SEC. We believe, I cannot prove this, uh, and I'll always tell you that if I can't prove it, uh, that a lot of that's going to the obligation warehouse. You, if you go to the DTC's website, you'll see that there is uh, an actual entity that's the obligation warehouse. Can you imagine in the United States of America advertising an entity that does nothing but house fails? I call it the stock graveyard. The number of, of fails in that entity is enormous and growing and growing. So um, I wouldn't be advertising that if I was the one that was, that was responsible in the United States for clearing a lot of these financial instruments. I think close to right before the, the, the uh, open, we were talking about a good, a good trillion dollars roughly. I think it's 800 trillion, 900 trillion dollars of financial transactions that the DTC clears. So bifurcating the sale from the delivery is another way. Another way is something that we were not successful, so we failed uh, uh, in trying to get this taken out of Reg show, is the bona fide market maker exemption. The bona fide market maker exemption in the states still exists in Reg show. Reg show requires a borrow, it requires a delivery, it requires ultimately uh, a threshold development of a threshold list if it meets half of 1% and more than 10,000 shares. Uh, and, then, and then you have to deliver in certain periods of time where you can't trade anymore in that, in that security. But exempt from all of that is, and the key phrase is bona fide market maker. So I submit that there's a lot of market makers that are not bona fide. They are shorting funds. Okay. What that means is, and Dave's an expert at this, incidentally, to, to maybe one of the best, incidentally, in the United States and Canada at, at determining spoofing and, and, and this issue with market makers. So uh, essentially, imagine that a market maker never has to borrow a share and they can short all day. Well, in fact, that's true. But ultimately, there has to be some type of, it has to, there has to be delivery. Your, your obligation to borrow is different from your obligation to deliver. And what's going on, we believe, in the marketplace at a systemic level is the market makers are now being used as a tool for another form of manipulation. Spoofing is one of those. Imagine that they post a series of block offers, you know, throughout the day. But ultimately, three minutes before the close, they pull all those down. They pull them down. So what does that mean? more fake news. You know, we got to hear a lot about fake news in the election. Well, in this stock manipulation scheme, there is a lot of fake news, fake news from the SEC, fake news from the class action lawyers, fake news from the analysts, fake news from the bashers, fake news from the market makers, uh, the, the option, the people that are purportedly doing bona fide options, etc. 
It's all about rigging the system. Yeah, so, we, we've looked at, and as you know, Wes, we've looked at all sorts of examples of uh, market manipulation, which you can actually find in the public market data. It's not easy, but you can find it because it's all public, all the orders in the market. Um, and and we see lots of examples of that. I think the the interesting thing when you start to go down this hole of the market maker, the, the bona fide market maker, it, it's an it's sort of a, a historical relic, right? There were bona fide market makers. There were market makers that used to be who had what, what you would call affirmative market making obligations, right? Yep. That was the hallmark of a market maker. And it meant that they had the obligation to be in the market uh, for a certain amount of time and through all conditions. Now, I'm not going to try and get into whether they actually upheld that obligation, uh, but uh, you know, and I'm not reminiscing about the days of the New York Stock Exchange monopoly and the floor and and the you know the the things that went on uh, during those times as well. Um, I'm a big believer in electronic markets, but at least the obligations were there, and we have lost those in electronic markets. Uh, so there are no what you would call affirmative market making obligations. There's no responsibility for these high speed trading firms to stay in the market or make continuous markets or be within a certain distance of the the, the national best bidder offer. Um, some exchanges have some programs, but this is something that I've looked into uh, quite extensively. And it's really these are paltry obligations that almost anyone can fulfill. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Dave. In fact, if you if you look at the number of dark pools and how that's increased trading and, and, and the high speeding trading platforms and the pipes, how a lot of these trades, especially cross border, you know, that's another thing Dave's a real incredible expert at is the cross border analysis. Because don't forget, every security that trades on the Toronto exchange of the same issuer impacts the issuer on the NASDAQ also or vice versa. And so the, to make the to make it harder on people like myself who do know how to root out all this. Ultimately, it may take two years, three years. My God, in one case, it took us seven years to get all the documents, right? Uh, but ultimately, we were able to root it out. And, and But it makes it much more difficult in a cross-border analysis, but they figured out how to do this. So, you know, transparency is, is, is a key issue in this fight, is, is being able to understand who's behind this, who's doing it, you know, et cetera. When, when you own 5% of a company or you own 10% of a company, you have to file a 13D or you have to do other filings. Well, why, why don't short sellers have to do that? And there's been some attempts to try and get that inputted. Well, that's failed. Uh, there've been attempts at a lot of things, but, but ultimately at the end of the day, what has to happen here is we, we need to stop the rigging of the system by the prime brokers. The truth is if you look at this historically, and this is a, a history moment here, this really did not start consistent with what Suzanne Trembass book said, which I think many of you have read according to my discussions with a couple of your members. Um, it didn't start really until the late nineties, early two thousands. Now this is speculation on my part, but it's a pretty good educated guess after 200 million pages of documents is this when, when the DTC purchased the NSCC whose sole purpose was to lend stock. Okay that's when it went haywire. And then you, 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 you add on top of that, the fact that the, the principal business of the prime brokers wasn't prop trading. It was doing IPOs and wealth management and other things. Okay. But ultimately proprietary trading and stock lending has been one of the biggest businesses. Well, what is stock lending for? It's called driving a company into the ground. 
okay, by the wolf pack, no different than, you know, the, the two kids that are fighting at school. The next day, one of them brings 10 of their friends and they beat the crap out of the kid until he almost dies, okay? This is, this is what they do. And they go out and, and, and portray themselves as, you know, decent citizens, this and that. That's just not true. As Rob Shapiro said, a former Undersecretary of Commerce, also on our team, as Dave is on several cases, um, he said it well. He said, look, this is killing more jobs, more families, more companies, and more economies. It's wiped out the wealth of an entire generation, an entire generation. Uh, so he's seen nothing like it. I've seen nothing like it, which is why I'm passionate and frankly have continued this battle to my own, you know, physical, financial, and otherwise detriment, even though we've been successful in cases, it, it just takes an enormous amount of effort. And incidentally, there have been threats along the way, and there have been, you know, we had security at one time, I mean, bodily security, crazy things, you know, Patrick Byrne can talk about that too. So, you know, uh, some of those, some of that happens, you know, uh, it comes and goes, you, it just goes with the territory. We're in an important battle and, and we, we can't give in on it. It's that simple. So it's, it's important. And Wes, you were telling me in, in terms of, you know, this quick trip through history, uh, it goes back even further than that, right? It goes back to the Great Depression and the Acts of 33 and 34. It does. It does. If you look at it, including, you know, a famous uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, actually it was called Chase Bank back then, was was uh, uh, sued for tax evasion for selling all these shares that that, that that didn't exist and all kinds of things. So one of the reasons for the 33 and 34 Act, if you go back and look at the history books, wasn't just the economy and the lack of liquidity and, and other factors. It was also the stock market was unregulated. So one of the principal reasons for the 33 and 34 Act was one, disclosure, which is the set of rules, the, the, principally the 33 Act, about, you know, giving everybody the same information. And the 34 Act is to cover things like manipulation and stuff like that, that, that aren't supposed to occur. You can't inject false information into the marketplace. That, that's under the, you know, the, uh, the 9A2 of the Security and Exchange Act, or 10B5 is, is another uh, federal statute and our, uh, a uh, rule that we sue under under 10b5. So uh, ultimately, there's really about five ways in my mind to fix this. First, we should not allow these institutions to regulate themselves. The fact that the DTC, who in concept had a good idea, the Depository Trust Corporation, their idea was we can no longer, if you look at history, shut the stock market down on a Wednesday or a Thursday morning in order to have the bookkeepers catch up. Why? Because people were delivering stock and exchanging it for cashier's checks or money or whatever. And so we want to do it electronically. Well, that's fine if it's enforced. But what's happened here is that the electronic delivery has been the perfect ripe environment for fraud. So that, that's number one. We shouldn't allow them to self-regulate themselves. Number two, you should require stock to be delivered that simple. No different than South Korea, you know, it, it, it imposed some new rules. Uh, I say it needs to be stricter than that. If you do this repeatedly, you should go to jail. This is stealing. At the end of the day, this case is about lying, disseminating all this false information, cheating, taking somebody's money and giving them nothing, and stealing. Okay? It's lying, cheating, and stealing. That simple. 
focus groups that we've talked to uh, prior to trial, you know, get this. We've never tried one of these cases because frankly, the facts are so nasty that once you get down to the facts, you know, they settle ultimately, sometimes for less, sometimes for more. Uh, some of the cases early on, we did get dismissed because procedurally, you know, uh, uh, things didn't happen like we wanted them to. But anyway, back to the fix. So transparency is a key issue also. We have to know who's doing what and, and uh, eliminate the dark pools, the high speed trading and all the games that can be played in the dark. We have to bring this into the light. You know, typically evil prevails in darkness, okay? Evil does not typically prevail long-term in light. So we have to expose that. So don't let them regulate themselves. Uh, require delivery of shares. You have to not allow shares to be lent more than once, okay? There's no uh, watermark or anything on these shares. Uh, some people have talked about, uh, you know, doing something to ultimately put some type of mechanism on that share when it's lent, okay? Uh, maybe it's blockchain, maybe it's something else. I know uh, Overstock, you know, ha has a, a series of preferred shares that, that, that are blockchain shares, but ultimately you cannot, you should not be able to deliver, I mean, to uh, borrow shares more than once until ultimately that shares delivered or returned because really this case is about supply and demand. If I can create artificial supply on a given day, I'm going to make the price go down every single time. It's not going to ever not go down if I can generate artificial supply. So I've had clients throw 10 million, 20 million, 30 million and trying to buy the stock and it doesn't make any difference. They'll keep selling you counterfeit shares as long as you want them, you want to, you want to buy them. Okay. Until ultimately we spent a year getting this client, their shares a year to get delivery of shares for tens of millions of dollars. And, and you know, who ended up without their shares? Well, God, who knows? Because that's the other part of the problem. The problem is uh, I call it the cakewalk at church or synagogue. Okay. There's 20 people walking around to the music. There's 10 chairs. The music stops. There's 10 people standing up that are fixing to get hammered by us. Okay. So our mission is to figure out a way to construct that matrix to we can, where we can expose those 10 people. And in fact, with people's help like Dave and Rob Shapiro and others, we're able to do that. We're, we've, we've developed the, the, the proprietary uh, stuff that we've developed and, and uh, share intel with David Winger and others. Who, who have the ability to uh, assist us in identifying who those, those people are that frankly don't have the shares that, that, that they purport to have. That's next. Uh, also, we need to enforce the rules and fines that are on the books. To some extent, there are criminal statutes. There, to some extent, there are also uh, uh, rules and regulations of the SEC and other rules in Canada, for example, that, that, that ultimately should force this to, to not exist. You shouldn't be able to sell something that you don't own and you don't deliver. Yeah, what, what you've described, I mean, I, I liked how you put it earlier, uh, you know, it's lying, cheating, and stealing, right? It, it's This isn't like an area where you should need extensive regulation, for example. This is all relatively straightforward, right? In, uh, in the space of best execution, for example, it's not like the SEC has a specific best execution requirement, but cases are brought under anti-fraud provisions, right? Yeah. This sounds like something that's very similar to that. It, it, it is. And when you think about it, you know, if, if, if somebody Xerox their car title a hundred times 
and sold it to a hundred people and took the money, but they only have one car. I promise you they would be in jail by a week from Tuesday. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But the problem is this is controlled by the cabal. Okay. Well, this is, this is and, you know, and, and, all sort of part and parcel of too big to jail, right? This is all part and parcel of, you know, it, it, and, and in talking with the community and talking with different people here, you know, there is a lot of anger and frustration born out of the great financial crisis, right? And the fact that nobody was punished or went to jail and the fact that a lot of people did really well out of that. And now we're seeing similar things, right? We're seeing this constant uh, redistribution of wealth and wealth inequality um, and constant lying and cheating and stealing um, and no repercussions because these people are too well connected or they're, you know, they are too big uh, to really take on. Well, which is why, frankly, to, to the credit of this membership, this approaching 300,000 membership, of, I guess some of which are listening, you know, is so critical. And, 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 and all the other lookalike organizations, whether it's Reddit or whatever, uh, you know, I say the more the merrier because we have to expose it you, nobody can deal with it if you can't expose it. So what we've been about doing for 20 years and the team is enlarged. And I was telling Dave before the break, you know, frankly, you're going to see in the next three to six months, some major things happen on the legal side because we've increased our bench exponentially. We put a big pot of money together and we're going to go after this in an unprecedented way because doing it one case at a time, while at least in the last 10 or 15 years has been successful, it's just not enough. It's not moving the needle. We're not just in this for money. Uh, as my wife said, you'd have to be crazy to do this for money. <laughs> you know, so, so the bottom line is it takes, you know, a gargantuan effort. It, it takes, you know, the, the, as you, as this group says, you know, uh, people as strong as apes. Okay. <laughs> because that's what it takes. So, yeah, I mean, that's great, right? They, they use the ape analogy to, to talk about, um, it's a pro, you know, it's a pro uh, an intelligence uh, analogy, but really it can be a strength analogy. I think that's a great it, it, twist. On it, it, it is a great twist and, and it's appropriate. You know, we, we, we call it, you have to be, you know, as strong as eight acres of garlic in Texas. Okay. So <laughs> the, bottom, the bottom line is, is that uh, it, it takes a gargantuan effort. It takes a warrior. It takes somebody that prints this principle and never gives up. Uh, because truly it's two or three of us against, you know, 10, 15, 20. I mean, hell I've had, 30 or 40 lawyers against us counting the ones on the phone. Cause it's, you know, every big New York firm. And frankly, all the lawyers are, are great lawyers and, and very capable. It's just in, in many cases, they represent a client that, that's a crook. <laughs> so, so the, the bottom line is, is it's up to each of us to make a decision. Do we want to be on the side of right? We want to be on the side of wrong. Do we want to uh, uh, try to preserve a future for our kids? And in my case, grandkids, or do we not, how do we want to spend the talents that God gave us? Okay. Do we want to do them for the good of mankind or we want to do it to lie, cheat and steal? Uh, you know, I was raised by a dad who was a Marine Corps fighter pilot, uh, flew in Korea. He's still alive. Uh, you know, 30,000 hours for Braniff International, a rancher. There is no gray in his life. I was raised where right is right, wrong is wrong. You don't look the other way when something is, uh, you know, is happening to somebody that's bad, you go help. And so that's in effect what we've done. Uh, in, in a very bold way, frankly, uh, not me, but our whole team is done and you're a part of that day. So the, the, reality, the reality is, as we say in Texas, it takes cantaloupe balls to do it, but it, at night you sleep real well because you're on the side of right. You know, you're on the side of right 
and typically that prevails. It may never, it may not happen in the way you want it to, and it may occasionally not happen, but most of the time it will happen sooner or later if you're persistent and you're and you're good at what you do. So Wes, a, a lot of the cases that you've brought, a lot of the things that we've talked about and seen and analyzed have happened, um, sure, in the public markets, in the public sphere, all the data was available in real time, but nobody was talking about it really, you know, when it was happening. Maybe small groups, maybe short sellers, maybe, um, you know, fundamental investors, but, but it never uh, or rarely got popular attention and certainly even more rarely would it have gotten attention at the time. And so um, right now we're actually living through a relatively unique circumstance. Um, and, you know, this community has come together around GameStop um, and, you know, a very specific circumstance uh, where, you know, the, the perception is that here is something that was a target of short sellers, even the poor and flawed statistics that were available, let's say mid to late last year showed that. Um, and it, you know, it, it, it really started as this, let's call it popular uprising to say, wait a second, you know, that that's not right. These numbers don't seem right. And frankly, <laughs> as, as was so eloquently put, we like the stock, right? So um, <laughs> you had this, this massive sort of decentralized and distributed effort come together. Um, and I liken it to, to other examples historically that we've seen of cornering the market. This is not, this is not an, an something that is um, not well documented. There have been lots of attempts to corner the market in a name and to really drive the shorts and make them suffer um, by doing that. So, you know, what, what do you think of this particular circumstance of the dynamics that are happening right now? And, and, and you know, do you think that it, it can be successful? I think it has the best chance of being successful. I can't tell you how many hours uh, members of our team, this is many years before you, Dave, um, although you've spent some time on it recently, uh, have spent with legislators, with uh, uh, enforcement officers, whether it's the FBI, whether it's the Justice Department. And, and frankly, we've worked with the Justice Department. So for the record, you know, we worked on uh, Operation Bermuda Short, who helped convict Mark Valentine, you know, a, a Canadian uh, stock manipulator. Uh, we worked on, uh, I know, uh, Lucy Commissar, uh, uh, mentioned the Sedona Corporation. That was our client. We worked with the Justice Department in chasing Thomas Badian and Andreas Badian. In fact, I think we, we deposed Thomas Badian in Vienna, Austria, which was an interesting undertaking because in Austria, to give a deposition, you have to send them the questions weeks before and then, and then question them, which is kind of a worthless undertaking. But nonetheless, the good news is we did settle that case ultimately, but we worked with the Justice Department because that ultimately involved Refco. And Refco, if you remember, was a huge uh, option firm uh, and, and, and uh, securities firm, I call them, uh, that went public and blew up. And it blew up because of their connections with Bawag Bank, which you know allegedly was uh, connected with the mob and with uh, uh, some individuals from Russia, Michael Basinkovich and others, I could go on. So, you know, we, we did work with them, but but I'll be candid with you. The Justice Department uh, has not prosecuted what needs to be prosecuted. The SEC, while they I applaud them for the regulatory actions they've done, uh, uh, it, it is a slap on the wrist relative to a consequence, you know, that we would normally give our kids. You know, if you're if you're going to slap your kid on the on the hand for stealing 10 cars, 
you know, and, and tell him to go to bed early, uh, he's probably going to continue to steal cars. So yeah, I take the video games away, you know. Well, that's right. Well, we do the phones. That's so right. uh, anyway, <laughs> so the, the the point is is that is that the consequence has to be commensurate with the crime. Yeah. Uh, that that's simply not happening. So what can change this? What can change this is legally doing what we're doing. What can change this is doing what this group is doing, what the AMA group, the the, the super stock group, et cetera, are, are doing, because ultimately it's going to take massive amounts of people to be involved in this one, to expose it, but also number two, to show the bullies out there, the, the prime brokers who have enormous amounts of money and, and don't forget are doing a lot of this on their own account. So don't be misled that this is only hedge funds doing this. That's not true. It's the proprietary trading desk of a lot of these firms. So they're making it both ways. Actually, they're making it three ways. They're making it when you buy the stock from them. They're making it when they short against you with the stock you bought. And they're going to make it with lending your stock to others so they can make, you know, negative rebate on it. So the, the bottom line is, is that uh, we, we, we're going to have to, uh, come together as a similar wolf pack to to share information, to educate ourselves and fight it. Okay. And ultimately, you know, win the battle as, as at least was done in part, you know, on GameStop. Um, you know, I, I'm in shock. The company, frankly, hasn't tried to do something. I know there's other lawyers that have filed class actions. I'm told, I don't know, because I'm not a class action person really. Um, but, but the bottom line is, is that it's going to take uh, a massive effort by people, uh, by the investing public, that'd be the best phrase, by the investing public to rise up and do things like keep their shares in cash accounts, monitor their account, make sure it's not, the shares aren't lent, that'll shut down a lot of it. Uh, having these uh, big pension funds, which I'm told are now changing what they used to do. They used to lend that stock out because they got a piece of the profits, but they've already seen that lending that stock out deteriorates their portfolio <laughs> because guess what? The asset base goes down in value. Gosh, that's a genius idea. So <laughs> the, 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 the point is, is you're seeing changes because one, it's not right. Number two, it's illegal. And number three, ultimately, you're not going to get the reward from it, you think, especially if it's exposed and, and punished. So uh, it, 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 this effort that these ladies and gentlemen in this group are, are involved in is critical. It's mission critical and other lookalikes just like them in my in my view. So I, I think there are two things that I've seen on the on the um, subreddit uh, consistently uh, that I think, you know, might be of interest to dive a little deeper into. Um, and so, you know, we, we've talked about this a lot and, and, and we've thrown the terms around today, but maybe maybe it would be great to get a little deeper into it, which is the idea of uh, synthetic shares and and failures, right? And and so maybe if you if you don't mind just going a little deeper into that dynamic, you know, what is that mechanism that 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 these firms are using to create these synthetic shares, and and what have you seen in the past? Yeah, and again, I'm going to qualify that in my answer, but to make it clear that I'm only using what's in the regulatory actions and out in the public marketplace, because again, I can't use any particulars from a specific case. What I'm seeing is is the the creation of futuristic instruments. They've been called rehypothecation instruments. They've been called repo certificates. They've been called putting a put and a call together. Uh, they've been called reverse conversions. There's many fancy names for them, but I call them I call them the the Popeye and Wimpy principle. Okay, it's like 
give me the hamburger today and I'll pay you next Wednesday. Okay. Except next Wednesday incidentally never comes. Okay. So, so ultimately, you know, that principle needs to not be allowed because ultimately it culminates in um, the, the uh, um, dissemination of false information. It culminates in, in, in that false information comes in several places, Dave. It's a great question you pose. Number one, they'll show it to the compliance department because don't forget mm -hmm. each one of these firms has a compliance department and that compliance department gets a knock on the door from the regulator or from the auditor that says, hey, what about this, Charlie or Sally? And ultimately says, oh, hell, we got to fix that. Okay. And so they go to the broker and say, what is this? Okay. Because don't forget the proprietary trading desk is a whole section of that firm. There are traders that do nothing but do prop trading. And so ultimately uh, they then say, well, we got to, we got to figure this out. So they'll go create this, you know, as, as two members in the conspiracy, the puts and the calls, or if they're short, they'll get a friend of theirs to sell them a bunch of shares, which incidentally are short also, but they'll mark them long. So guess what happens when they, when the naked short seller is, has this contingent liability on the brokerage firm's books, he calls a buddy, sell me some long shares. He sells him the long shares. Well, that, that, that cancels out. It net it, magically the number of long shares he got sold netted out his, his naked short to zero. He's, he's all good until the compliance guy comes knocking again. So the mission is to kick the can down the road, kick the can down the road. So, basically, uh, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's creating a, a futuristic instrument uh, to, to uh, uh, you know, deal with the option market, the re repossession or rehypothecation market, and anything else that is a futures contract. It's basically a futures contract to do something in some form representative of shares that never gets consummated. They so let's say I sell a million shares that I don't have, right? Right. Okay. And um, and and you know, a couple days down the road, I get the the call to deliver. Right. Um, and so you know, I don't, I'm not going to deliver those shares. So okay. I'm going to come up with different ways. So one of the things we've seen is you know, are large in the money options. Uh, trading hands is that is that something that you've seen before? Yes, I have. I've okay. seen that. I've seen that done frequently, and so, you know, a, a legitimate hedging strategy, okay, um, is acceptable, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, but when it's fake, when it's not real, no different than than the work you've done uh, with spoofing, okay. Right. Uh, they spoof the market with fake orders, okay, and and you know, fakeness or or lies deserve no place in this process. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so and so I would affect that by, let's say, calling a friend and another broker and saying, hey, I've covered you before. Now you cover me. Right. You know, let's exactly. let's transact these 10,000 contracts. We're going to do it together. And, you know, we're, we're going to be fine because we're going to tear up that that contract two and days before. Do, right. Two days before and do something else in order to keep kicking. We'll those create another option it. contract that, that, you know, typically those option contracts are 60 days, 90 days, 120 days out. So imagine the carnage that can be done between the, during that time period. They'll and do and I'm going to go to the compliance department. They're going to say, you got to deliver. I'm going to no, look, look, I'm fine. No, I, got, I got this, I got the contract in place. You show it to them. It's signed. I mean, you know, the, the, the enforcement actions actually talk about it. You know, it's just, it's just not real. 
hiding these fails uh, is also, you know, a, a huge thing. It's one thing to when you look at the books of the DTC, you know, the SEC has, has said this, you know, those balance to share. Typically, you got to look at the DTC as the stock bank. OK, but then when you go to subsidiaries, as it pointed out in these enforcement actions, it gets to be a different story. And how, how long are these have these fails been there? Well, they've been there sometimes years. So, you know, it's just ironic that this obligation warehouse, you know, was was created several years ago. Uh, and it's actually advertised for a fee. I mean, really? So, yeah, can, well, but I'm, I'm looking at their website and it tells me that it promotes transparency and, and promotes a common repository for failed obligations and mitigates counterparty risk. That sounds great. It mitigates counterparty risk. Okay, well, you know, and again, I don't know this for certain, but I'm told from a reliable source that that uh, those fails, which are probably a year or two years old, I don't know in many cases, uh, every day that they send it out to be delivered, it, it starts a new day. So basically, no fail is older than a day in there. Okay, so it, it, if you looked at Refco's books, just for just for grins. Uh, some of you viewers go go to the uh, uh, Pacer. Pacer is a, a website you can go to with the federal court system. Look up the bankruptcy of Refco, and look up the failed to deliver contingent liability on their bankruptcy schedules. What you're going to see is it's enormous. Okay, but imagine what it was when they sold the shares. Okay, don't forget the mission of the bad guys or girls is to drive the price down. Why? Because the more they drive the price down, the more cash that gets delivered back to the broker. Why? Because the broker has to keep enough cash for that contingent liability, that share to be delivered. So if I can drive it to zero, then guess what? I get to keep all the cash, okay? Which is really what it's about. It's about debits and credits. It's that simple. It's about supply and demand. So if I can drive the price down each day, then I actually get to make and disperse to myself that cash and put it back in my pocket. So ultimately, you know, stopping that is a, is, is a critical issue in, in the process. So fails are, are a complex thing. Uh, it's one thing to short, but it's also another thing to fail. Okay. So, so what do you think about the, the level of disclosure around fails? Uh, you know, you can get some information on that. Um, is that when, when you get that information, is that, um, that doesn't include the fails that have been offloaded offshore. Is that what, it what you think? To, to my knowledge, and I'm not going to say this absolutely because I can't prove 100% of what I'm saying. I think substantially it, it's true what I'm fixing to tell you. I do not think it includes the fails uh, overseas because that those fails show up on the balance sheet of that entity, okay, of that entity in the UK. Uh, also, I don't think ultimately. Uh, the, the typical fails data that one looks at uh, covers ex-clearing fails. Now, I think there are other places like SIFMA and other places that do report fails uh, of, of, uh, for ex-clearing. So what's happened, I believe, I can't prove this yet, is that the ex-clearing has gotten to be much more prevalent than it used to be. I believe a simple reason for that is, is it eliminates the audit trail. It's broker to broker. It's, it's easier to conceal. Now, ultimately, I think, I'm not certain, that has to be dealt with by the auditors because don't forget all these firms are audited. Those auditors have to sign off on it, okay? The CEO of those companies has to sign off on it. 
you know, thanks to enforcement that, that came after 2008. So at the end of the day, um, uh, having transparency of those fails is critical. Why would you publish under Reg Show, again, the name of the issuer that's been raped? Publish the name of the brokerage firms who have these fails to deliver. Because ultimately what we've been able to do with our matrix and our due diligence with the help of you and Shapiro and principally David Winger at Share Intel is to, is to uh, figure out a way at various cross sections of information, which you do in your business too, Dave. Uh, and, and rooting out in those, and we're cross-checking information at each traffic intersection, if you will. So imagine a car is, is the stock, the car's traveling through four or five or six intersections with different traffic lights. We're able to figure out by cross-checking information at each intersection, who doesn't have the shares, okay, on a given day. And don't forget though, that changes every day because all this happens at light speed you know, a lot of these trading platforms, which some of the viewers may not understand, are just computers in a room, for God's sake. The days of the exchange and the people and relationships on the floor, well, that still exists, but at a much reduced level. Well, you think okay. it's all in New York. It's actually here in New Jersey in the data well, centers. Well, well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And so the data centers are massive, and, and, and which, again, takes the human element out of it. It's a little easier to cheat somebody if you don't have to look them in the eye every day, right? It's just a computer that nobody has to answer to, except the regulators, if they can find it in the milliseconds that it takes to make it happen. So, so I think that I think drilling down on the fails, having transparency there, which again gets into transparency about all of it, is critical. And I think also eliminating these futuristic instruments to make it look like you've got something that you don't have just ought to be eliminated. And if you do it, you ought to go to jail. I mean, that's simple. You're, you're, you're participating in disseminating false information into the marketplace for the purpose of manipulating the security. Okay. That's a violation. Real simple. Yeah. So um, I, I think we've, we've covered a lot of what we had set out to cover. I'm, I'm curious, Jay Smart, uh, you know, do we have any questions uh, that you wanted to get to? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's two main questions that, um, I've been asked in the AMA thread that you haven't already covered um, or aren't really relevant to, this, to the situation. So over the past you know, five months, we've uncovered a lot of data that suggests you know, GME has been or was attacked by short, naked short sellers. I don't think there's a doubt about that um, in this current instance by many of us. So a lot of people are asking, you know, what's the threshold for you know, actionable legal ramifications to come into play against these naked short sellers? And do you know, the shareholders or GameStop, for that matter, have any path to recourse? Uh, I'll be happy to take that, Dave. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. So, um, so I'm going to speak personally. We've we've done due diligence, uh, Jay, on um, I think over 70 companies over the years, and we've taken 20 of those cases, as I've said. Um, so I would say the threshold of damages is probably a minimum of 100 million dollars. And the reason is it costs, even at our level, uh, $7 million to prosecute one of these cases, ultimately to fruition, okay? Um, so as you can imagine, you have to have uh, a large damage model. That damage model could be achieved many ways. There's many different ways to construct that damage model. Uh, typically, we've represented the company and the largest shareholders. 
Uh, will we look at ever representing a class? Possibly, although that's not really what we've done in the past. Um, we figured out a way to represent the issuer and ultimately to represent some of the key shareholders. Uh, we've done that because typically the issuer has the, the largest amount of damages, just to be transparent. Uh, and what we typically do is uh, uh, have them do the due diligence with us. So we'll perform a level of due diligence, which typically the company and the shareholders pay for. And then uh, thereafter, our mission is to take the case on a contingency basis. So ultimately, we pretty much have that down to a science. So there is ways to do the due diligence. Uh, some of that, frankly, is proprietary to us because we've spent literally millions of dollars developing systems to identify who the perpetrators are. It's one thing to say, hey, there's uh, 200 million shares of overhang in this stock. It's another thing to figure out on this day who are the bad people that were doing it or on this day and, and, and how this case works, this legal case works, is you have to do it you know, day by day to figure out who was it that distorted the supply demand curve, if you will, uh, uh, on that given day and how much damage ensued from that causationally was connected to that and then ultimately bring a case. Uh, otherwise, you can certainly write brokers, uh, challenge them on certain things. You can take your stock uh, and put it in a cash account, although watch it carefully. Um, and then ultimately, uh, uh, you know, you could you could file something against your broker, but again, that goes that goes to arbitration, which frankly is run by the industry pretty much. So, so uh, uh, I, I don't think that's a that's a good remedy. So I think ultimately it has to be a, a large group that, that that gets together if it's a shareholder group, unless you own a bunch of shares. Uh, the the recent case that we filed uh, uh, in New York, the Harrington case, is in the Southern District of New York. We just filed it. Uh, involves a, a large shareholder that held a bunch of shares of a company. And you can read that complaint. It's about 120 pages. That'll tell you some of the illegal activities uh, in that. So um, basically, uh, uh, from my perspective, uh, it, it's difficult to do it without, you know, a, a large damage model of at least 100 million. Okay. And so in terms of the damages part, would you consider something that Robin Hood did back in January, you know, a part of that? Um, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Because ultimately, but, but the question is that there's two kinds of damage from that. One, uh, damage to whatever customers they had, because my understanding is what they did was, and I'm not familiar with the facts as much as I should be on that particular situation. But what I understand is to make sure I have the facts correct, is they would be happy to let you sell your shares, but they would not let anybody buy shares, right? Yep. So right. that's just another way of distorting the supply-demand ratio, which of course causes the stock to fall. If you if sales exceed demands, guess what happens to the stock? So yes, mm -hmm. I think that's a manipulation tool. I think they would be liable uh, for market manipulation unless there's some exclusion I don't know about. I've never examined legally that exact situation. But I would think fundamentally on its face, it seems actionable. And you know, what are the damages to you? Uh, I don't know. Typically damages occur in connection with the sale or purchase of securities. Uh, in some cases there is fraud on the market. That's a different, that's a different analysis. Uh, so ultimately um, uh, it would depend on the damage that ensued from that, because even if, even if they're liable, the question is, 
what damages flowed from those bad acts, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you think uh, the the high levels of short interest would could play into that? Yes, it would because here, here's what happens in the damage analysis, which which uh, you uh, know something about, Dave. When we look at the damages, we look at every reason for which the stock was impacted on a certain day. And don't forget, never ever is 100% of the damage from the bad guys, okay? There's legitimate short interest. Well, that's not actionable. There's bad news on the company. That's That contributed to the, the, the downtick in the stock. Uh, there is industry sector problems. If that's in an industry sector that got hammered, there's the general economy. So what our expert, our damage experts do is they look at that damage pie and they factor out all the other reasons which were legitimate that negatively impacted the stock. And typically that leaves in our cases, 30 to maybe in some cases, 80% of the damage attributable to the bad acts of the defendants. So then once we get there, we then have to drill down further and say, okay, how much was this company responsible for? How much was this company responsible for? Because then all the group of bad guys, unless you can get joint and several liability against them, which means we're all in a conspiracy, which is very hard to prove. We're all liable for each other's bad acts. You have to say how much is each party for the bad acts they committed responsible for. And I'm going to, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Wes. So my apologies, if you're not familiar with this case, but uh, recently there was a TD Ameritrade class action lawsuit that was not, not dismissed, but essentially, uh, dismantled. And what they said, and this was in the space I tend to pay attention uh, to, which was best execution. Um, and my dog has something to say about that, too. I don't know if you hear her in the background. But, um, you know, she gets riled up when we talk about best execution. But, um, <laughs> it was a class action lawsuit um, where uh, at first they had made it past the motion to dismiss. Um, but the judge decided that you could not certify a class in best execution because each uh, client's executions were unique and the circumstances were unique to them. And so you couldn't aggregate those costs up into a class. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. And I'm, I'm just curious if you think that would have any bearing in something like this, where if you were trying to organize a class, for example. Well, I think it would, but it sounds like, and again, I'm not a class action expert, but I do understand the rules in general. And I do understand, I think, what is the important rule that would impact, would, would be the basis of that decision. In order to be certified as a class, you have to share commonality, okay? Yeah. And here's why. Imagine a jury has to try a case where each person's set of circumstances are different. You could never get to the end of the trial and it would just be total confusion. So you have to have, for example, the same liability facts, which in this case would be the form and timeliness or not of the execution of the best execution. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm not familiar with the case, but in general, I would say that I, I get part of the rationale, not saying it was right or wrong in that ultimately, you have to be, you know, in the same ball game with the same bat, with the same players in order to ultimately uh, share that commonality. Now, how each of you were damaged is a different way. A, a good example of that would be, let's take the cases where uh, uh, the, the carcinogenic substance uh, roundup was made, okay? Well, there's one manufacturer, okay? <laughs> That's common. The people all got damaged, that's common. 
but some of them had cancer. Some of them can't walk. Some of them had this issue. Well, that's about damage. So they established in, in that case, or they, they think they established, it's on appeal, that ultimately that substance caused cancer. And so uh, they had that in common. So without that, I could see why the judge may have said, I'm guessing you don't meet that commonality requirement. Hence, I cannot certify you because we're not going to try 600 cases in my courtroom. Right. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, Any I'll, other questions? Yeah, I'll take it back. So a lot of a lot of the users are on are curious about more of the legal process. So off the back of Lucy Commissar's um, AMA that she had with us, she mentioned that a lot of the useful information that she is able to report on uh, regards to naked short selling actually comes um, through documents collected through discovery from cases like yours. So people are interested in, you know, when bringing a case that actually involves naked short selling, how do you approach the gathering of information and what are your goals in that discovery process? Yeah, well, first you need to know that most of these cases have protective orders in them. And so ultimately the documents can only be shared between clients. And in some cases, just amongst the lawyers, it's called attorney's eyes only, or, or ultimately uh, they can be shared with clients and experts. So we would not be able to share that. So when she says uh, uh, documents from our cases, ultimately it's because those documents somehow found their way to the SEC or found their way to FINRA or found their way to something else. Or in, in the Overstock case, <laughs> the other side mistakenly published the document themselves <laughs> where the president of, of, of the, one of the trading subsidiaries said, you know, uh, I forget the language of basically uh, F compliance. I don't care what they said, help <laughs> stick in their ear, just keep doing it. You know, so so ultimately um, you would you would have to uh, go about getting those documents either through a legal proceeding or ultimately through a regulatory action in some way. Um, we do have ways, frankly, where we're able to, again, from public information, uh, check this, these intersections of information, which is publicly reported, but typically that takes the cooperation of the issuer, incidentally. Without the issuer giving you some of that information, you can't do that. So one of the places I would start not to, to create a run on GameStop is I would ask the issuer to assist you as shareholders in getting this information. I mean, for example, every issuer contracts with the Depository Trust Corporation, Jay, to, to ultimately uh, uh, provide services, services that the DTC puts on their website. One of those services is to give you the daily position report of each broker. So imagine all the stock of GameStop that Merrill Lynch holds is bundled up and sent up to the DTC and that entity of Merrill Lynch and Merrill Lynch has tons of numbers at the DTC. So I'm just going to talk about Merrill Lynch in general. Merrill Lynch then puts all of that in street name in CD and co. Okay which ultimately holds all the stock of their clients in GameStop under their number. That number gets debited and credited every day as buyers and sellers of theirs uh, sell the stock. Well, having that daily position report is real important. Okay. Uh, the issuer should be able to share that with its shareholders, I think. And in doing so, 
lets you compare how those debits and credits are happening when compared to ultimately what's trading in the marketplace. Because you can figure out if you have a level two machine, ultimately who's trading, and then you can see T2 or whatever, wherever you are, uh, when that stock clears. So there, there are ways to track it. The best way, frankly, is for an issuer to contract with Share Intel uh, uh, or, or some other entity. Uh, so ultimately, I'll tell you that that you know we've had several cases in Georgia where we were able to to, to figure that out just from public data, for example. Uh, both of those cases were brought under civil racketeering because many states, incidentally, have a state RICO statute, treble damages, severe penalties. But to just to get back to your question, uh, you either have to get some cooperation from the issuer, you have to hire Share Intel, you have to hire somebody that, that can be a stock tracker, as I call it, uh, um, in some form of David Lauer or somebody who can help you get that information through these various intersections. And, and it would be money well spent, but it would be much more expeditious if you could get the issuer's help. It's hard to do by yourself. Have you ever seen a situation in which um, these synthetic share, you know, the, the topic of conversation that keeps coming up through the AMAs and on the board uh, is about, you know, the, the fact that all of, if all of these synthetic shares actually try to vote, you're going to end up with more than 100% shares voting. Have, have you ever seen that before? And, oh, I and, have. And oh, I have. You have. Many times, many times, many companies. Over, like I said, over the 60 or 70 companies we've had, I would say over half at their annual meeting had more votes show up at the annual meeting uh, than, than, there, than were issued an outstanding. Now, mind you, that doesn't even count the people that have their take their proxy statement, throw it in the trash, okay, because they only right. have 200 shares. You understand? Right. That doesn't count them, nor does it count the naked short sellers at the proprietary trading firms because sure as hell they're not voting their shares, okay, <laughs> because they're not going to expose what they've done. So, so think about the magnitude of that. I'll tell you in some companies over 200% have shown up to vote. Okay. So that's not unusual, Dave, at all. It's ridiculous. That's the result of this is the issuance of counterfeit synthetic phantom, whatever you want to call them, shares that, that the corporation did not authorize. Only the corporation can authorize the issuance of shares. And, and have, you, have you talked to regulators or legislators about that and, and, and how have they reacted? Uh, oh, they act, they act like it's a big issue, but have they done much about it? Not really. I mean, don't forget Suzanne Trimbath, who I've worked with for 20 years, uh, you know, talked about it when she worked for the DTC, if you recall in her interview, mm -hmm. which I watched the, the, the AMA interview she gave, which was quite good. And, and she talked about it being an issue then. And yep. it's a bigger issue today, okay? Uh, it, it, it ultimately just gets zeroed out. You know, go talk to Broadridge about it and see what they say about it. It would be an interesting conversation. But, but yes, it's a big problem. It's a, it, if you think about it, it disturbs corporate governance. And that's a whole different damage model for the corporation is how can you interfere with my corporate governance this way? You're not only impairing my ability to get financing and grow this company, you're impairing my ability to carry on it with corporate formalities because you have disturbed intentionally the formalities of this corporation. And that's another byproduct of this illegal process when you think about it. So uh, I'll give you a hypothetical scenario. 
say at time of you know the shareholder meeting um, in June, GameStop records say 200% uh, votes. What what course of action would it make sense for them to take? Can they take any course of action? Like what's what's history usually done with these type of scenarios? Well, no different than what Overstock did, Taser did, and others. You you figure out who's responsible for that extra hundred percent, and 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 you go sue them. Real simple. Uh, and 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 incidentally, in most states, there are laws that say if the corporation won't do it then you as a group of shareholders can derivatively do it. Now, whether those claims are direct claims or derivative claims is a complex analysis, but don't forget for corporations, corporations owe their board. I mean, their board owes a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. And ultimately that fiduciary duty is the highest duty uh, allowed by law. You look at the jury charge, which is the, the, the thing the jury fills out, it says that a fiduciary must put the interest of him or herself behind that of their client. Okay. So if the corporation I submit does not do that, then they have breached their fiduciary duty, black and white. I've chosen not to, I've been asked to do many of those cases. I've chosen not to do that. Although clearly it was actionable with several companies that said, Oh, I'm just not going to do anything. I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. Most of those companies incidentally have gone to zero and they're gone. Okay. Cause they did nothing ridiculous. Okay. But ultimately if they don't, then there is a way legally where the group can put them on notice and tell them, if you don't do it, we're going to do it. Okay. And, and screw you. Okay. So it's called a derivative clause of action. Now I want to qualify that because you have to separate, direct claims, which are different than derivative claims. You would only be able to bring derivative claims in that vehicle, that legal structure. But that does create accountability, frankly, between shareholders and the company. Let me ask you, um, oh yeah, I wanted to ask one question that I received um, over chat and I didn't know the answer to. Um, are, are there any means by which uh, uh, shorts can offload positions onto non-DTCC members? to avoid members being liquidated? Or is it, is it the case that if a DTCC member created the positions, then they're on the hook and it has to stay within the DTCC? I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, that's something I'd have to check out, Dave. I, my guess would be it, whether you're a member or not uh, isn't what counts. Ultimately, even if you're not a member, as long as you send in that that shared offset, the, 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 the short or the naked, the negative position at the DTC, I think they would take it from anybody, but I don't know the answer to that. Okay. No problem. Um, I had a question come through in chat too. So it kind of loops back to the legal recourse question that we we're talking about before. And that is, uh, is dilution or loss of shareholder rights considered damages? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Dilution is a very important point. So, so think about this. If you bought, you know, 1% of the corporation's outstanding common stock and, and ultimately the naked short sellers, short sellers increased that issued shares by another hundred percent. Now you own half of 1% of that company. So clearly you have been diluted. That dilution is compensable for sure. Uh, now, what, what's the value of it? It depends on many factors, but yes, dilution is an actionable form of damage model. Now, whether it's fraud on the market or whether it's done in connection with the sale or purchase of securities is a different issue. 
because you have to have standing under most uh, legal theories to uh, either bought or sold shares or for it to be fraud on the market. Makes sense. Um, so kind of also jumping back to another question is, I think you mentioned one of the cases in, a, in the discovery process took years upon years to collect the information. So how helpful or resistant are judges, the DTC exchanges, whoever else they try to source information from when it actually comes to that discovery process? It's a great, great question. Uh, generally speaking, when you're dealing with judges, you're dealing with people. All those people bring their individual emotional, educational and relational uh, you know, uh, uh, perspective into that hearing that, that, that where we're asking for documents. Generally speaking, frankly, it's tougher for judges in New York to give us discovery than it is other places, although I'm hoping that changes in, in, this, in this case we just filed. Um, and I'm not saying I disagree necessarily with any ruling of any judge because those judges, without those judges being there, we, we don't have the, the, the way to pursue and, and legally get redress, right? So they're, they're important in our society to fairness and justice for all, right? But looking at it, uh, I will tell you it varies across the country. I will say state judges typically take a little more uh, keen interest in it than federal judges. Although again, I've had some federal judges that, that are the exception to the rule that are better than some of the state judges. At the end of the day, the mission of the lawyer, frankly, good lawyers in this legal space is to limit and be very razor sharp and precise on what you need for that case. Don't shotgun it, okay? That's a waste of time. You're wasting the court's time. If you're gonna file a motion to compel, which is what it's called, you better go in with no more than five or 10 things and you better be able to explain why each document you're requesting ties into what you're gonna put on during the trial that's ultimately gonna be admissible evidence in the trial to allow you to obtain a verdict, to penalize these people for the wrongdoing that have been committed. If you can connect those dots and keep that list to a limited amount, you know, less is, is better than, than more, uh, then you're gonna be successful most of the time. Fantastic. Did you, did you have any other questions, Dave? Because that wraps up. Yeah, I, I think we've covered everything. This has been great. Yeah, sweet. Well, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there, guys. Um, thanks so much for giving your time today. It's really appreciated. And hopefully we can have you back for a part two if we find a topic that we want to deep dive on. I'd be happy to, it, it, you know, I've been 20 years at this cause. If I live another 20 years, which I think I will, uh, I'm still going to be committed to the cause if it's not resolved. And if it is resolved, then I'll go on to the next cause because we do all kinds of other things across the country. So this is just one of them. But this is my most passionate one, honestly, because it, it frankly has our whole country at risk. It has the whole world at risk. I'm not trying to scare everybody, but I truly believe that. And so, you know, who why, as we say, as my dad says in the Marine Corps, you know, you, you, you and your colleagues go get them and, and keep enlarging and keep moving forward. Uh, we're right there with you. Okay. Fantastic. Great to hear. Thanks both. And right. we'll see everyone for the next Super Song KMA. I think it's Saturday with Lucy Commissar. So perfect. Bye. All Thank right. You. Be well. Bye bye.